Exodus chapter 15, we're continuing the thought of true praise. Let's just unite our heart together as we come to the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we thank thee again for the opportunity to lift up our voices and our hearts in praise and adoration to thee, our God. And oh, we praise the Lord that we read that praise is comely unto God, it's proper, it's right that we should praise thee for all that thou hast done for us. And oh God, we pray that our praise, Lord, would be acceptable. We might ever guard ourselves from offering that which is not pleasing, even unto thee. And Lord, we pray to that end that thou might teach us from thy word, from this very passage. And Lord, I would bring us in to this passage this morning. And thou would, Lord, instruct us again. Give us hearts that are prepared of God. We pray that thou would clover us neath the precious blood, bind the old devil, Lord. Pray that spoil his plans, that thy word would run and be glorified. Lord, fill us with thy spirit and with power. Give us words from thyself. And Lord, we pray that there might be signs following the preaching of thy word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been considering the first song that is recorded for us in the canon of scriptures. The two sides of the Red Sea could hardly provide a greater contrast. You try and picture in your mind uh, just where we are in terms of the context of this chapter. On the one side of the river, the Red Sea, there was the resounding of shrieks of sorrow and of anguish as the sight of the Egyptian army And the reality of them being defeated was before their very eyes. as Those bodies were washed up on the seashore. While on the other side of the Red Sea, well, there's a song of deliverance accompanied by the the cymbals and the timbrels. And well might the children of Israel sing unto the Lord. The passage of the Red Sea had once given them victory. Victory over their enemy. It had once given them now freedom. Freedom from their taskmasters. Freedom from the affliction that they long suffered in the land of Egypt. And it had given them bounty. They had given them the treasures, the riches. Because the things that the Egyptians had given unto them was now in their possession. But while we might pause and reflect a little upon what that scene would have looked like. You know, there's a great, also a great contrast in Christian circles today as to what is considered as acceptable worship and particularly praise. A.W. Tozer, some of you might have come across him, is an American preacher of a bygone day, and he said this, and I quote, Isn't there a difference between worship and entertainment? The church that can't worship must be entertained. That is why we have the great evangelical heresy today of religious entertainment. Millions of evangelicals throughout the world have devoted themselves to religious entertainment. They don't know that it is as much heresy as the counting of beads or the splashing of water, holy water. We cannot deny that this attitude is found in much of current Christianity. He went on to say that people cannot live without entertainment. 
So today many churches have become poor theaters where producers peddle their shoddy wares with the full approval of evangelical leaders who can even quote a holy text in defense of their delinquency and hardly a man dares to raise his voice against it. That's some time ago. Tozer's ministry was uh, back in the day, as I would say, 50 odd years ago. But you know how true is what he said. We all know, of course, what happened to Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu didn't use the sacred and approved fire that came down from God. They made their own strange fire, it is described as, and the, the, the coals that were kindled by their own hands. And the penalty was immediate death. As that fire descended, came down from God to devour them. And the lesson surely is that we're not to approach God with anything that is profane in our worship. You see the word strange that I've used there, strange fire. It literally means foreign or profane. It's connected with adultery. In terms of Israel, we're adopting the religious worship practices of the nations that were around them. And the God of heaven calls it profane. Strange. The evangelical church today is in danger of offering the very same worship because of what they see others doing. Because the music and the songs that they sing appeal to the lusts of the flesh and to the lust of the eye and to the pride of life. And then they feel that they must go that way as well if they're going to keep up. And where the words of Malachi 1 and verse 10 would certainly sum it up where God says, I have no pleasure in you. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. What is acceptable is what we find in God's word. Is what Israel displayed here at the banks of the Red Sea. And that's why we have termed it as true praise. And I trust that we have already gleaned some lessons from our, our, our study last time. Well, I want to take it a little further even this morning. I want you to notice here the preeminent in the song. That which stands out is the celebration that Israel offered to God for His holiness. We've been singing it in some of our praises already today. We have it spoken of in the question, if you come to verse 11, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Maybe we, we, we just stop there for a moment. Bear in mind that, of course, Egypt had a plethora of gods, but the song reveals that Jehovah God was superior to them all. And that was demonstrated in the whole series of miraculous interventions that God did make upon the land of Egypt, upon the, the ten plagues as we have already studied. The one true God had exalted himself above all the gods of Egypt, above all the gods of the earth. The plagues occurred so that the Egyptians, quote, shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt. Chapter 7, verse 5. And the deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea was that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 4. He revealed his power. And now Israel has occasion to consider the greatness of their God beyond compare to that of the statutes, to that of the grandeur of their temples in Egypt that they'd all now left behind. And they say, who is like unto thee, O Lord? 
among the gods. But look further at verse 11. Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. And you notice that which is prominent and preeminent and first mentioned. He's glorious in holiness. Herein is the great attribute of God, the center of all divine attributes, the heartbeat, if you like, of every other attribute of God's character is His holiness. God is superior in holiness because there is none like Him. Puritan Thomas Watson said, holiness is the most sparkling jewel of His crown. We worship a holy God. God is holy. There is the superiority of God's holiness. It's something, men and women, that is celebrated in heaven. For we have those words both in Isaiah and in the book of the Revelation where the, where the seraphims are heard to say, Holy, holy, holy. And here at the Red Sea, the nation of Israel are certainly conscious of the holiness of God. The refrain of their song was glorious in holiness. And they emphasize that because that is something that is often neglected. It's forgotten about today when we think about the character of God. The holiness of God is scarcely mentioned. God is light. God is love. Yes, thank God He is. But He's also holy. He's also righteous. And because he is holy, that means God hates sin. And because he is righteous, that means he must punish sin. See verse 3, for example. To evil, the Lord is a man of war. That's bringing out his holiness as well. The Lord, and of course the name is Jehovah. Jehovah is his name. He's a man of war because of his holiness. But that means not only the superior aspect of the holiness of God, but the severity of his holiness as in what follows these verses. When a holy God judge, judges, that's not a pretty picture. And you look at what follows verse 3, it shows you it. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. His holiness causes him to overthrow Pharaoh and his chariots. They sank in, into the bottom as a stone. Look at verse 7. Send us forth his wrath, which consumed them as stubble. Verse 12. Thou stretchest out thy right hand. The earth swallowed them up. There's the severity of God's holiness. Instead of his right hand being extended in mercy, the hand of God's power was extended in holiness and the Egyptians were wiped out with one stroke. Why? Because God is holy. God is holy. He must punish sin. He hates sin. He's a righteous God. God's right to judge is based on his holiness. And that's why Christ died on the cross. If we bring it right forward to Calvary. Because of divine holiness, sin had to be judged. 
And in Christ, all the sins of all his people, all who will ever trust Christ for salvation, all their sins were judged completely in him, so that all that trust in him can know sins pardoned, forgiven, removed, and were accepted in the beloved. It's not that God turns a blind eye to sin, that he can forgive you and me, pardon us. It's because our sin has been judged in Christ on the cross. He who knew no sin yet became sin for us. He poured forth his life's blood. He paid the penalty and the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sin. God punished sin in his own son. Why? Because he's a holy God. He's a righteous God. And can I say, parent, that's why you will chastise your child. Your heavenly father punishes sin. He chastises his children. And so an earthly father will chastise their child and make them to see what is right and wrong. If you love your child, you'll chastise them. Ephesians chapter 1 is what I was going to read, verse 6, because we are... Uh, 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 pardoned uh, of our sin because of Christ and accepted him by faith, then we have acceptance. It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. We're not accepted because of what you and I do or who we are. We're accepted because of what Christ has done for us. And he is our Savior. But here's a thing that I don't want you to miss. Moses and Israel rejoiced in the fact that their God judged sin. They rejoiced in it. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallow them. They're bringing it in song. They praised God because he had dealt in judgment with those who were so obviously defiant and defying him. Look again at verse 7. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Those that were established in their anger against God. They looked at things from a divine perspective. You notice that they refer to Pharaoh and his armies as God's enemies, not theirs. And that is but a preview of what will happen in the last great battle and overthrow of the devil in the last times when we read of the fall of Babylon. For example, in Revelation chapter 18, you should turn over to it, and we read of how the cry will ascend, Babylon the great is fallen. Well, what happens immediately after that? Chapter 19. And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and had avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah! And their smoke arose up forever and ever. There's praise in heaven. There's praise among God's redeemed for God judging sin. And God judging the enemy. Much people in heaven singing, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! 
A.W. Pink is another commentator. You've heard me mention him. He suggested that if the believer doesn't rejoice in God's judgments over his enemies, then there's something wrong. It is only, he he says, the sickly sentimentality of the flesh which shrinks from meditating upon these divine perfections. And Israel rejoiced in God's judgment upon the Egyptians. Well might they cry, who is like unto thee, O Lord? Fearful and praises to the wicked. When the wicked hear of his holiness extolled, it causes them to shake and to tremble. And you know, as we've made reference to the last times, so we can back that up. Because we read in in Revelation chapter 6 of what happens. Verse 15, it says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us, from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Can't stand before a holy God, a righteous judging God. How entirely different to the God as presented today in Christendom. Oh, man, remember, listen, he's unchangeable, he's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's triumphant. Yet how few glory in God's holiness. How few praise Him for His faithfulness. How few are acquainted with His wonders. Israel had cause to rejoice that God had moved in judgment. And when God moves in judgment against His enemies today, God's people should rejoice as also. Not be taken up with some fleshly sentimentality. I want you to consider their new standing. You'll find it in verse 13. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. They were brought nigh unto God into his very presence. For that is what redemption does for the sinner. This is the position for every child of God in Christ. Peter brings it out. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 he says... For Christ hath also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us unto God. He suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. God's people are those whom he has purchased for himself, to be with himself forever. Isn't that what the Savior taught, even in the upper room, to his disciples? He said that where I am, there ye may be also. And we are guided unto that holy habitation. That's our place. We're brought on to God. How His holiness is satisfied with the finished work of Christ's atonement on the cross. The hymn writer expresses it well. So near, so very near to God. I nearer cannot be. For in the person of His Son, I am as near as He. You let that sink in. In the person of His Son, I am as near as he, you see, Christ has bridged the gap that sin caused as our only mediator and the only saviour. And our position now, if we're saved, is in Christ. 
In heaven, we won't be any nearer to God as in terms to our position because now we're in Christ. That's what the hymn writer was expressing there. What comfort that gives. And like Israel, we too can rejoice in the truth that we worship the all-holy God. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. I tell you, that's, that's different to some of the sentimentality sentimental rubbish that you hear in Christian songs today. It's nothing about the holiness of God. All about the flesh. There's something else we need to see. And I brought this out in terms of introduction last time. Not only does the song reflect upon what God did, but the song, here's a different part if you like, it also speaks of what he's going to do. And so we have here the prophecies in this song. I've stated that already. Not only does it consider the past, but there are verses of this song that appeal to the future. You'll see, and I want you to notice it firstly, and that concerns other nations. Look at verse 14. The people shall hear. Notice the change of tone there. Shall. Future. And be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestine. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm they shall be still as a stone till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. What God had done at the Red Sea was the guarantee that what he had begun with Israel. He would finish it. They weren't resting on their own strength. You'll notice how they sing it in verse 16. By the greatness of thine arm. By the greatness of thine arm. Opposition there most certainly would be. Battles would have to be fought. But futile would be the efforts of the enemy. It would be impossible for the enemy to keep Israel out of their inheritance because it was God executing his eternal purpose. It would be impossible to keep them out of the land of Canaan. And the same, you know, is true with regard to the people of God. It's equally impossible for our enemies or the devil to keep us out of our promised inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven. God has purposed it. And he's reserved it for us. You think of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The verse 38 says this. How it closes. He says. For I am persuaded. That neither death. Nor life. Nor angels. Nor principalities. Nor powers. Nor things present. Nor things to come. Nor height. Nor depth. Nor any other creature. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing can break that union that you have with your Savior today. The devil can't prevent you from getting to heaven. Just the same that the enemies of Israel couldn't prevent them from crossing over later on the river Jordan into Canaan. And what is prophesied of here was to come to pass. The peoples of the Gentile nations, they did hear. And they did fear. 
Israel's confidence in God wasn't misplaced. I want you to think of just a few that are recorded for us. And I'll bring you to the scriptures to show you it. Think of Jethro. Who's Jethro? Well, he's not only Moses' father-in-law, but he's a priest of Midian. You turn to Exodus chapter 18, just a couple of chapters over. We come uh, to that place where Jethro comes and meets Moses. Look at verse 10. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. There's the priest of Midian testifying that he had heard of what God had done. He heard of how he had subdued and overcome Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt. Of how God had delivered his people. He says, now I know. There is the prophecy coming to pass. I'm up with Jethro. Moab was afraid of Israel. Go a little bit further with me to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers 22 verse 3. It's where you come across this character by the name of Balak. And he seeks to employ Balaam to curse Israel. Verse 3, Moab was sore afraid of the people because there were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. They had heard about what had happened. And they were afraid of them. The people in Canaan had also heard. Come a little bit further. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2 is the time where you'll come across Rahab. The spies of course. Look at verse 9. This is what uh, she is able to tell them. She said unto the men. Joshua 2 and 9. I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Why would that be so? Jericho, the great city. And yet they're in weakness. Verse 10, for we have heard. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Zion, and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. Is that not a fulfillment of the prophecy that they sang in verse 15? Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. The song was coming to pass. I'll give you one more even further away. Because when we come to the time of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read there of the Philistines. And they're the perpetual enemy of Israel. But yet they express what they had heard. 1 Samuel 4 and verse 8. It said, Woe unto us! Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. The very Philistines had heard it. And down through the times, the years that have passed in between, they hadn't forgotten it. Men and women, God still reigneth. 
He still will show evidence of his divine power for it is prophesied of and it ought to strike a holy fear into the hearts of men. The heavens declare the glory of God. You know, many choose to ignore the evidences of his judgments. And they try to explain it away by chance or they try to explain it away by some natural power or some natural cause that, that happened in nature or, or in creation. Well, who, who created creation, if you can put it like that? It's God. Who created the natural powers? The winds are under his control on all the rest of it. But woe to those who ignore the divine manifestations of God. They do so for their own eternal judgment. The prophecy concerned the Gentile nations. The prophecy also concerns in particular Israel as a nation themselves. Look at verse 17. I shall bring them in. That's not speaking about the Gentiles. That's speaking about the people. And plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. God is faithful to what he promises. God has given you a promise. You hold on to it. He's faithful. He didn't deliver them by the Red Sea just to leave them in the wilderness. He was bringing them into a new land, the promised land. God brought them out of Egypt. Wasn't that the message in Exodus 3 verse 8? And I will come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey. He brought them out of Egypt that he might bring them in to the promised land. What God had miraculously done in their deliverance was all the encouragement that they needed. He would do the same in bringing them into the land of milk and honey. Dear child of God, the miracle of God's grace that he has done in your life is all the encouragement, all the assurance that you and I need that he will one day finish his work and he will bring us into that heavenly abode. The power of God's grace is able not only to redeem but to bring you into that eternal inheritance. God is trustworthy. God is faithful. Therefore, we're exhorted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, where it says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful and promised. He's faithful and promised. A prophetic note in this song not only concerns the Gentile nations, not only concerns Israel in particular, but it reaches its climax with God himself. Verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. There's where the song ends. And the song ends where it starts, with God. What God had wrought at the Red Sea prompts Moses to prophesy, he shall rule forever. For no heathen God shall be able to overthrow him. Don't you like the way in which scripture is written? Forever would have been sufficient. We'd get the idea. We'd get the truth. But it says he shall reign forever and ever. You see, this song is not about men. Not about Moses. A lot of the modern stuff's all about feelings and men and stuff. It's all about God. It begins with God, it finishes with God. He shall reign forever. Men and women, 
Many may join forces to fight against the cause of God and his church. Pharaoh certainly appeared to be succeeding for a time. And so may men and nations in our day appear to be advancing with their ungodly agendas. But the reign of God is not under threat. And it will never be in jeopardy. The psalmist, he pens it well. If you turn to Psalm number 2, right at the start of the book of Psalms, look at the words of verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against the Messiah, his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision, then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. The Lord is upon the holy hill of Zion. He says, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And God says in verse 9 of that psalm, They shall be broken like a potter's vessel, broken in bits. You drop a, a clay vessel on the ground, you know, the chances are it'll be smashed into smithereens. And that's the picture that God gives when God arises to judge the nations, those that speak counsel against him. God is on his throne, he ever will be. Therefore, let us not despair. God lift our gaze and lift our hearts unto him in praise and adoration, just as Israel did here. Matthew Henry sums it up. It is unspeakable comfort of all God's faithful subjects, not only that he does reign universally and sovereignly, but that he will reign eternally. And there shall be no end of his dominion. Didn't we sing it earlier on? He shall reign from sea to sea, from shore to shore. Let us then as believers show that he does reign. We're his subjects. Received this morning, let us show it in our lives that he does rule by giving him complete submission and complete obedience in our everyday life. The glory of God was upon the lips of these singers. Pharaoh and his army represented the pride and the glory of men, but it was extinguished. The waters of the Red Sea. Verse 19 really is, is just a summary of it all. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots, with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. While the glory of man was destroyed, the glory of God was exalted. The same God who destroyed the army of Egypt also delivered and displayed his glory in his redeemed people. The psalmist could say, great is the glory of the Lord. And as the people of God, we will one day join with all the redeemed of the Lord around the throne to sing this song of Moses and of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 5, where I close, in the words of verse 9 and 10. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. It'll be then true praise. There'll be no fault in her praise then. There'll be no hindrance in her praise. There'll be no sin in her praise. 
We'll then have perfect voices as well. But until then, let us endeavor to render the truest praise of our hearts unto God. For he is worthy of it all. Let me ask in closing, have you the assurance that one day you'll sing in that heavenly choir with that perfect voice? You'll only do so if you have met with Christ, the Redeemer, here on earth, in the day of his grace. And God again gives the invitation. And he gives it to you through the gospel. You can experience and you can know what it is to be lifted up from the married clay. And your feet set upon the rock. God establishing your goings and putting a new song in your mouth. Even praise unto the Lord. Wonder will you come this morning? You're not saved and experience that. The Lord be pleased to help us to seek Him and to praise Him as He ought.